This show includes strong language and may sometimes feature discussions of difficult or triggering topics. Please check the show notes for content warnings. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Movie Catch-Up, a podcast where two friends work on reducing their movie backlog. Each episode, we catch up on previously unseen movies recommended by the other. I'm Greg. And I'm Leanne. We're back and we're going camping. Today we're talking about Camp and John Wick. But before we get into the movies, we're going to take some shitty BuzzFeed quizzes. What is our quiz we've got here? Okay, so the quiz we're taking is everyone has a musical that matches their personality. Here's yours. You're so Hades Town. Love it. Wouldn't it be funny if I got Hades Town? A musical I've never seen and know very little about. (laughs) Very little about it. You feel bad about that. I feel like I should know more. Okay, so the first question is, choose a place to listen to cast recordings. So there's, like, a cabin on a lake. It looks like a desk where you're, like, writing in your journal or something. Um, It looks like maybe, like, an office or a dorm room that's, like, very stark. With a little poster that says, get shit done. Yeah. Uh, It looks like it might be, like, a school hallway or, like, a university in your bedroom or, like, while working on the computer. Honestly, all of those are very valid options. Yeah. I, some of these aesthetics are great. I like the little cabin and the, the little writing journal desk with a cute little teacup and everything is very aesthetic. Hopefully for me, it would be while working on the computer in the living room working on the computer. Yeah. For me, I'm definitely going to go bedroom. I listen to a lot of cast recordings. I mean, at my computer for sure, but that's like someone chilling on their laptop on the couch. Yeah, definitely a bedroom for me. Uh, Yeah, for sure. What's your dream pet? Uh, We've got this wonderful close-up shot of a cat meowing. We've got a, looks like some sort of poodle mix uh, dog galloping through a field. We've got a cute little uh, rat peeking through its cage. Adorable little hamster in a little ball, maybe. A very grumpy-looking rabbit, and a cute little parrot. For me, hmm, I have a dog, and I have gerbils. This is a rat and a hamster, not gerbils. My dream pet, I'm honestly going to go cat, because I love my dog, who's sitting right there, and is probably going to start whining at any moment. But I'm more of a cat person at heart, I think. I have a cat, and I feel like it would be really cliche for me to choose a cat, but I'm pretty happy with that. Although I do know people who've owned rats and have played with them, and they're very cute. Rodents are great pets. I think I'm just going to stick with cat, because that's that's really the ideal for me. I can't really see you owning, like, a rabbit or a parrot or anything. I wouldn't want to. I don't like birds, because they move very erratically, and they kind of freak me out. And... I've heard that rabbits are very difficult pet, or they can be very difficult pets. Yeah. So. I've had every pet on this list apart from a parrot, I think. And yeah, ra- uh, rabbits were not fun. <laughs> yeah, not ideal. Not mine, at least. Mine were kind <laughs> of horrible. Okay, so next question is, choose an aesthetic image. So we have a painted brick wall, um, a bonfire, some sort of like double exposure kind of film thing um looks like a chinatown or koreatown street in a westernized city with a 7-eleven 
a pair of high heel shoes and like a sunset cloud thing in like radiant of purple and blue. I'm going to say bonfire. Interesting. Why bonfire? I love bonfires. I really love the smell of wood burning fires. It's like heat and aroma and it's just kind of a whole experience. Well, I can't smell, so I'm not going to pick the one that's got a strong smell attached to it. I I grew up loving bonfires, honestly. I was, I was a Boy Scout. Uh, I had my fire-making badge and all that. But for me, I'm really loving this, and it's probably not shocking, this, like, uh, the brick wall, because it's very, like, muted blue, and it's, like, very cool-toned. And I really vibe with, like, muted, cool-toned aesthetics. Not so much in, like, my clothing and stuff. I thought you were going to say the double exposure. It's That's something more I would, like, wear. I like the poppy, flashy colors in that. It's very fun. But for, like, my living spaces and everything, I like very dark, muted things. And I'm liking this brick wall. That's very true. Uh, The next one is, what's your favorite school subject? We've got science. I don't like school. English, art, math, which is wrong. That should not be your answer. And music. No judgment to anyone who likes math. Um, For me, the I don't like school is tempting. I did not like English. I went to university for English, but I did not like English in high school. And if this is high school, I would definitely pick art. I only had three people in my art class, but it was great. If it's school, then I would say science. Otherwise, my inclination would be towards English. I'm going to say science. All right, next question is, choose some shoes. So we've got some, like, very cool Nike high tops. They're all white. And we've got some high top Converse all-star sneakers. A pair of, um, like, neon pink patent leather pumps. Doc Martens. A pair of, like, yellow boots that I think are also Doc Martens, actually. And then another pair of Nike high tops and like a black and blue. I'm glad you're describing this because I literally could not tell you the brand of any of those shoes except for the Nike. The Converse All Star has the star on it, so you just kind of know. I guess I've never had Converse. And Doc Martens are iconic because they have the yellow stitching along the sole. Oh, so that's, that's what that. And also, I wore Doc Martens when I was a kid, so I re- I recognize them. Fair. Um, of the three here. Mm, I'm a little bit torn between either the Converse All-Stars and, like, the yellow Doc Martens, although I don't care for high-top shoes of any kind. Um, I'm going to go with the Converse. For me, none of these are Crocs, so I'm not vibing with any of them. For anyone listening who doesn't know, I only wear Crocs. It is my only shoe I own that is not a work shoe. And I've just given up all shoes in existence other than Crocs because I don't think they're legitimate. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's a hard one. I I like the glittery pink pumps. They're cute. But these white high tops up here are definitely the cleanest looking one, in my opinion. I'm going to pick those. Uh, okay, we've choice. got... Yeah. We've got Choose a Classic Musical, Rent, Legally Blonde, which I wouldn't call a classic musical, although I do love it. Uh, Phantom of the Opera, Wicked, The Color Purple, and Little Shop of Horrors. These are all wonderful, and I love all of them. 
I watched Rent every day for months on end when I first discovered it as a young Rent head. It means a lot to me. Little Shop of Horrors is one of my all-time favorites, though, and I'm going to have to pick that because it is just perfect. It's going to reveal me as so basic if I pick Wicked. That, no, it's But fine. also, like, if I choose Phantom of the Opera, and I'm a little bit torn between both of them because they're great. These are all great. I'm a tough choice. Uh, I'm going to choose Wicked. I love Phantom nice so, choice. so, so much, but... Phantom for quality of story. We'll we are going to get to the 2004 Phantom in one of these episodes at some point. Okay, I'm going to hit done. All right. Oh, my God. I got Dear Evan Hansen, which I love. It doesn't tell me anything about it specifically. It doesn't look like. But I saw Dear Evan Hansen live, like, the... The week that the coronavirus started actually, like, really getting bad around here, and there was lots of panic about it, it was the same week I had tickets to go see it. Uh, so I was glad it wasn't a few weeks later. It would have been canceled. But it was wonderful. It's a poll called Be More Chill, which I've never heard of and know nothing about. I've heard of it. It's, I think I've heard like a couple songs, but I've never really heard much about it. It's like a guy whose head is kind of pixelated, so I guess it has something to do with technology. Let's do a Google. Be More Chill is a musical high school junior, social outcast, recently divorced father, something, 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 something. They do Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's about zombies, something, something. I don't know. I'm sure it's good. Interesting. I'll have to look at look into it a little bit more in the future and maybe check it out. But I, I don't know what it says about me that that is the musical that matches my personality. So. Well, maybe you should just be more chill, Leanne. What does that mean, Greg? I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty chill person. I feel like Dear Evan Hansen definitely fits with me. It's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, really, it's really good. It could say that I'm a horrible person, though, because Evan is not a great character, but that's okay. So let's talk about movies, since that's what we're here for. Okay. I'm going to call it off. I think you better. Wait. Then to a fitting. Fritzy, what in the hell are you doing here? Jesus. Well, I, I knew you'd be discussing stopping the show, and I just thought how disappointed all the kids would be. You scheming little bitch. Please, I'm a child. You think for one... Oh, save the speech, Rummy. She's fucked, I'm ready, and the goddamn show must go on. So let's get cracking, shall we? So for this week, I had you watch the movie Camp, 
This is a 2003 movie directed by Todd Graff. Um, the only two other movies he's directed are Band Slam and Joyful Noise. I've seen both of those, and they're wonderful. I especially like Joyful Noise. The movie stars uh, several people. The only one I think I knew about beforehand was Robin DeJesus, who's a, um, a... He was on Broadway for several years, I believe, uh, as Michael. You've got Daniel Letterly as Vlad and Joanna Chilcote as Ellen, with many others, including Anna Kendrick in her very first movie role. And there's also a cameo by Stephen Sondheim as himself. Uh, this movie has 64% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 68% audience score. So the general summary of this movie, uh, Camp is a movie that follows a group of teenagers over the course of one summer at the musical theater-focused Camp Ovation. The story focuses primarily on three main characters, Michael, who has left home after being beaten up at his school prom for going in drag, which has created trouble at home with his very unaccepting parents. You have Ellen, a naive young girl who's struggling with self-esteem, and Vlad, a seemingly very stereotypical, very straight jock, arriving for his first summer at Camp Ovation, certain to shake things up. The cast also includes many other characters, from Jill, the bitchy queen bee at camp, Fritzy, the shy girl trying to shuck, uh, suck up to Jill to fit in, Jenna, who has her jaw wired shut in exchange for not having to go to fat camp for the summer, Spitzer, who is just very gay, and then there's many others, including Dee and Sean, who are mostly just there and being black and have nothing else to really do, sadly. Uh, throughout the summer, the campers put on multiple quite elaborate and intense musical productions, spending little time doing fun camp things and mostly just practicing and performing. Among the musical numbers, we get developing relationships between our three main characters. Vlad, the hot straight boy, has everyone thirsting after him, including Michael, who Vlad instantly takes to striking up a very intimate friendship, and perhaps something more as weird flirting kind of takes place. Ellen also takes a liking to Vlad, and through their summer, a romance quiz quickly blossoms between the two. Ellen not quite feeling sure about why he would pick her and still struggling with self-esteem through all of it. These relationships hit a breaking point as we find out Vlad has a lot more going on than we might expect, uh, such as having OCD, but later on finding out he also has a girlfriend back home. And everything starts to hit the fan at this end of the summer as relationships start to break apart. Michael sleeping with D to prove something, Vlad sleeping with D right after, Ellen finding out, Vlad's girlfriend showing up. By the end of the summer, it seems like everything between our main characters is in ruins. Things are said, there's some skinny dipping in a lake, and the summer comes to an awkward close. So that's kind of the weird gist of the movie. Uh, I picked this one for you this week because it is kind of one of those seminal movies I saw when I was having my coming out experience. and. Like a lot of people can attest to, the movies you watch in that time period, for better or worse, kind of stick with you. It's kind of like this whole extra adolescence you go through and you kind of can't shake a lot of those things you watch during those formative time periods. And so I keep coming back to this movie. I've come back to it quite often. And it's not even that I really love this movie because I have a lot of issues with it. But I think there is something here that brings me back. So I'm curious to see what you think about it. What were your kind of initial thoughts? So one of the things about how we've formatted the show is that we're not allowed to 
talk about our thoughts until we actually sit down to record. And very hard time with that when I was watching this movie. Uh, I didn't say anything specific, but I definitely gave you some clear indications that I had some feelings yeah, I about. Was a little worried. <laughs> um, I watched it twice, and I think overall I like it. Uh, it's a, a very hard movie to track down. Um, I really did have a hard time finding a good copy of it to watch. Um, even the fact that you had to like specifically include the year that the movie was released to make sure that I could locate the correct movie was very telling. Yeah. So I didn't know anything about this movie going into it. Uh, it was very hard to track down. Not a lot of people have heard about this one. <laughs> yeah. It's a difficult movie to sort of succinctly parse your feelings. Like you really just kind of have to talk about it. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Maybe we'll jump into the good parts first. So for you, what were some of the highlights of the movie? Okay, so some of the good things about the movie. Uh, I liked that Vlad was a character who was suffering from OCD and that he wasn't just like, oh, I'm like really fastidious about being clean. Like he had a specific instance of this mental disease that really had a negative impact on his life if he didn't medicate himself. So what basically Vlad's version of OCD is that when he's talking to people, if he's not taking medication, he gets hyper-focused on the words that they're saying, counting the words, breaking them down into numbers, breaking those numbers down further by adding them up. And like, basically he gets derailed in what he's doing, trying to sort of math out what everybody else is saying. So I thought that was a really interesting and good aspect of it, um, just in terms of its general presentation of a disorder that is usually just shown to be like somebody who washes their hands a lot or like keeps their room really clean it's like it's not something that's ever really well presented in tv and movies at all it was the first time that i'd seen ocd portrayed on screen as more than just kind of like like you said like these compulsions to like keep Mm -hmm. things clean and stuff yeah, like you either see it as like things to keep clean or people who like wash their hands a lot. I think I saw it might have been an episode of Criminal Minds. It was definitely some police procedural about a girl who suffered from OCD and she had like these rituals that involved candles. And I don't know like how accurate that falls into, but it was like different than what you typically see. But I thought it was an interesting part of this story. The fact that Vlad was actively taking medication was also a good part. Uh, it's just something that I wasn't expecting, so that was a good part. That scene, actually, I I really liked where Vlad explains that. One of the interesting things about his character, because he does come off from the start of the movie, we'll talk more about him, but as very stereotypical without a lot of depth there. And about halfway during the movie, he has this conversation with Michael where he explains his uh, his OCD, and it's just this great breaking down moment where he reveals more about himself and is finally vulnerable for the first time. Mm-hmm. Loved Anna Kendrick. Oh, so um, good. She played Fritzy so well. Like she was so fucking ruthless, but she sold the hell out of it. Uh, that rendition of the girls who ladies who lunch. Yeah. The ladies who lunch was incredible. I actually had to look at so um the song after the fact, and I watched a couple versions with like Patty Lupone and some other people. I actually, ended up Patty's finding very good. Yes, I actually ended up finding the musical that it came from and listening to the entire 
podcast recording of the whole show, which really? I really enjoyed. Yeah, Company is really, it's really so good. good. Company is great. Yeah. But I thought her rendition of that was really incredible, but also just like her whole character and her character arc was really uh, interesting, considering that I'm fairly familiar with a lot of Anna Kendrick's work. Yeah, I. it's funny because I always come back to this movie as the movie I know Anna Kendrick from, which I know is ridiculous. It's one of those things, like, if I ever met Anna Kendrick, the first thing I'd say to her is like, oh my god, you are so good in camp. And she would probably go, what the hell? How do you know what that is? But this is what I always go back to. It's like, it's not Anna Kendrick from Bitch Perfect, it's Anna Kendrick from camp. Yeah. I've seen this movie so many times. He's really video good. On YouTube the other day, I didn't watch it, um, but it was one of those like Anna Kendrick covers her film career, starting with Pitch Perfect to whatever her most recent one is. And now that yeah. I've seen Camp, and I knew that was you know like a very early role for her, I was like, why is this movie not being included in that? So it's just kind of interesting to see where people um, sort of lay the the line for when somebody's career actually starts. Yeah, because she was huge on Broadway before this, like huge. Since she was like eight or something. Oh wow. Yeah. She's she was like a Broadway vet for a long time. Like uh it's funny watching some interviews of her, like little eight year old Anna Kendrick talking about being on Broadway. It's really cute. But just her character in this is is great. Just to to kind of bring up what happens with her a little bit more in depth. Um the whole summer she's basically like falling around the queen bee Jill and doing everything for her. Basically her little slave is like fetching her drinks, cleaning her clothes and all this, but she becomes a little bit too obsessed and too overbearing. And Jill decides that uh, she just is going to drop her essentially. And this leads uh, Anna Kendrick's character Fritzy to kind of snap and pull a full, whatever happened to baby Jane and ends up poisoning her <laughs> She starts throwing up during the middle of her number, Lady C. Lunch, and then Anna Kendrick's right there to go on stage. Uh, and what's the iconic line? I wrote it. Oh, yeah. So the iconic famous line is she busts in, uh, and Bert, who is one of the camp counselors there, is like, oh, you little bitch. And she goes, she completely switches from her little innocent girl narrative and goes, oh, save the speech, Rummy. She's fucked. I'm ready. And the goddamn show must go on. So let's get cracking, shall we? And marches out on the stage, delivers this insane number, like belting out the song. And she just switches from the innocent little Fritzy to this like complete badass on a dime. And it's so good. Um, she has a conversation with Bert. Like as she leaves, she's got like a, it looks like a bottle of bleach in her hands. And if that's what she gave to Jill, I was thinking it was like throwing up is not the reaction that Jill would have. Like it would burn her esophagus and like she would. I think it was dish soap or like a, sorry, um, dishwasher detergent. Either way, like. Yeah. It would have a much more serious effect on her than just causing her to throw up. Like she would not be able to sing anymore. And she's definitely able to do other performances after that. So I was just like very WTF about the whole thing and yeah I also really loved the scene where I feel really bad that I don't know his name but it's just kind of the nature of this movie one of the black students um I think you're talking about Sean I think we were talking about this before okay, yeah, yeah. the older brother to be yeah. the little guy yeah, yeah Sean so they come into the camp counts like the camp instructor's office and they're complaining about like the lack of black roles for black students like 
they're they've been cast in Fiddler on the Roof and they're in costume when they come in. And it was just so good, uh, you know, to call out the fact that, you know, the show the summer shows are very, very white. This is very uh timely with everything that's going on in the world right now. But mm-hmm. yeah, I was I made a note, I was like, although there are black Jews, but like not really black Hasidic Jews, but that may not be true. But uh, still good. And then, of course, what happens is they change the show from Fiddler on the Roof to Dream Girls, and then the lead uh, for that show ends up going to a white girl anyway. And yeah. I, I really love the scene where Ellen is singing, um, and I am telling you, <laughs> and, I'm I will, telling you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Dee is just in the background, like glaring daggers at her. And I mean, honestly, Dee definitely should have been the one singing that song. Yeah, I think. Dee is the best singer in this whole movie. If she was like born to play that role, she would be great at that role. Honestly, Jenna would have been good if she didn't have her mouth shut as well. But you yeah, know. The, the funny thing is, there's so many black campers. Like they're everywhere in the background shots. We have, I think, four or five named black characters in the cast here. Yeah, and there's clearly quite a few of them. They could do a production. A lot of these productions seem like they're not even full casts. Like a lot of them are like three to five of the campers do a production together type of thing. Like they could have done something. Yeah, I, I, it's hard to tell. I think we see like a major number from each one, but I think they're supposed to be doing the full production. That's kind of the sense that I got. I think so. But nonetheless, for somebody to come in and be yeah. like, hey, you know, we need more shows that involve no. like. It's great because we have colorblind casting. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing they get. Yeah. But then, you know, to, to do a show that has black characters and then be the lead character to a white girl is just like. Yeah. Very appropriate. It's also just hilarious because you've got Ellen in this giant beehive wig screaming out, and I'm telling you, to this like six year old kid who's supposed to be playing her romantic interest, who's just standing there because he's like six and doesn't know what's happening, basically, and is just staring forward as Ellen is like on the ground sobbing, screaming, and I am telling you. And it's so funny a visual with D in the background. Like, it's a really funny scene. Yeah. I really liked Michael's drag birthday party. That was probably, like, the best part of the whole movie. Um, So good. You know, just the general support of all of the campers. Everybody, like, having a lot of fun in drag. A little bit of a question for Ellen's choice of dress-up. A little bit of uh, racial costuming there. If you know what I'm referring to, right? I can't remember. She's, off the top of my head, which she was in drag, male drag, and I couldn't remember. Yeah, off she's my head, which got she like a bandana as. like around her head, and she's got like the little oh, teardrop tattoo. Oh, so, totally. Yeah, yeah, that was questionable. Yeah, it was definitely a little bit uh, racial costuming. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll talk about some other things about Ellen later in the categories that aren't the good category. Let's yeah. just just put a pin in that. Yeah, but that scene was. You know, just really good because yeah. of Michael's situation with his family, what happened at his junior prom, um, just showing the general camaraderie between all of the campers. Like, everybody's been there for more than a couple of years, so they're really close. Yeah, the fact that they all come out in full drag on his birthday just to make him feel less alone, like, it really nails the, like, the chosen family aspect of um, a lot of queer culture where it's like, you can't always choose your family and 
a lot of them not being accepting and all that, but like your chosen family can fulfill a lot of those same roles and give you the comfort you need. Yes. And it's just so great to see communities come around people like that. I also really liked the scene where I think it's D, but I'm not sure. Uh, or maybe it's the scene where Bert is just like giving them all the what for. Uh, but Vlad being, you know, confronted about the fact that he's got this privilege as a cis straight white man. And I think that's during Bert's uh, time yeah, read about I think so. their <laughs> being next to anyway. But yeah, it was just like, you know, a, a, acknowledging that because he is white and he's cis and he's straight that he has, you know, a certain amount of privilege afforded to him compared to everybody else. And like him having to acknowledge that, I, I really liked that a lot. Yeah, it, it ties in a little bit to the another earlier scene we see about that. I like that this movie touches on stuff like that. Like one of the first scenes we get of them practicing is Ellen and Vlad and Jenna. And the, they're doing a weird like... Um, more artistic three-man play thing where it's lots of like the scene that I'm referring to then. Oh yes. That's I thought you were talking about the one where, where Bert comes out and just like reads everyone to filth uh, later on, yeah. but there is the early scene. Yeah. It's a, it's a different uh, guy at that point. He's, he's one of the other camp counselors and they're doing a play called midnight sun. And it's like very experimental theater and all this. And it's, uh, I, I don't know exactly what it was about again, but it was some, some kind of a war or something like that. And he basically says, like, you guys have no lived experience. Like, how are you supposed to act this? You've never had to suffer through anything in your entire lives. You're so privileged. And, like, the acting for this has to come through real lived experience and truths and stuff. And you can't dig deep enough without all this life experience. Which I thought that was kind of funny because he's, like, trying to get these three kids at a summer camp for musical theater to do this like very weighty, heavy production of something that's like very personal and important. It's like, well, maybe don't do this at summer camp with like 14 year olds. But it was a a good message. Like just basically saying like, you've never had to struggle with anything at this point. Like how can you expect to, to dig that deep? I liked that a lot of like the instructors for the, um, the camp as well. were also like people of color. You have like a black, um, uh, director who was doing with the dancing mm-hmm. and like the Latinx um, instructor who was doing the performance with that was the Vlad and the Ellen and Jenna. Summer, yeah, yeah. I, I love his, his yeah. quote that I. It's always actually stuck with me. Where it's this whole like eyes, eyes, nostril, silent scream <laughs> is like the thing they're trying to act, and he just like says it with such commitment. Eyes, eyes, nostrils, silent scream. It's great. I also really loved. At the end of the movie, um, you know, Jenna and she's singing this song, which is like basically one giant fuck you to her parents. Um, but her mom is just like in the audience and she just looks so damn proud of her daughter as she's giving this incredible performance of this song. Um, mm-hmm. And just like the parents of this movie are so terrible. So to have this one moment where you know, one of the parents was just, like, really visibly proud of their child. Uh, I liked a lot. Yeah, that's the song. That's one of the original songs, uh, Here's, Where I- Here's Where I Stand, that Jenna sings. One of my big things I come back to this musical for is the music, specifically the original songs written for it. Uh, the opening song, How Can I See You Through My Tears, or How Shall I See You Through My Tears, uh, that song, Here's Where I Stand, and... 
for the want of a nail at the very end. Those and no, there's one more that they sing that's Bert's original song. I have it written down somewhere. Century Planet. Those four specific songs were written for the movie and they stand out so well because they're they fit so well into musical theater. They were clearly written by someone who knows about musical theater. And I really just want like those to fit into a full musical, like especially Century Planet, the song they sing of Burt's that was from some lost musical. Like I want that whole musical now. It was so good. We did not love that song. <gasps> Didn't like Century Planet? Not particularly, no. You might need to re-listen to it. It's good. That's good. I'm sure it's a song that could grow on me if I listen to it enough, but in the couple of times that I watched the movie, it, it didn't resonate with me in any particular way. Are there any other good things about this movie that you want to talk about? Or should we just push on into the bad? I've got quite a few of these notes here as far as the good stuff. Like, I, There's a lot in this movie I really like. The opening scene alone, for me, I, I always come back to because it is so well shot, apart from a few things, but it's the opening scene where we see Michael going to his school prom in full drag, and even the people at the ticketing booth like are trying to refuse to give him his ticket to get in, but he ha- like they're, they're forced to let him in, basically, and every step of the way we see all this resistance. He's clearly not in a safe environment, and then barely after getting to prom... He gets dragged out by a bunch of bullies and, like, gets the shit beaten out of him in this hallway. But the whole thing is set over top of this song, How Shall I See Through My Tears, that is so gorgeous. And we see Dee belting out this gorgeous song as all the other campers are around her, and it keeps uh, flipping back and forth. Um, And the whole thing is that while Michael is getting the shit kicked out of him, and it's, like, really gruesome... He is projecting himself out of where he is and to camp and to this song being sung. And he like slowly walks up to D like naked and bruised. And then all the campers just like encircle him and hug him. And like, he's gone to his happy place to kind of like not be in his body anymore. Well, this horrible traumatic experience is happening to him. And it's the juxtaposition of this gorgeous song against this horrible thing is hap- that's happening. And it's just like such a stark opening the thing that kind of ruins that for me is the fact that they also cut in Vlad and Ellen's opening stories between that two, which are super weird and don't really fit the tone of that. And I kind of, I don't know, this could go into the nitpicky section, but I kind of wish that that whole intro was just Michael's story. And then we got to see Vlad and Ellen later because that whole opening scene was just really powerful for me with Michael's story. Yeah, I agree that the opening um, musical number was really good and that the way that it was interspersed with Michael's story was well done. And I I agree that, I mean, obviously what they're trying to do is like introduce the three primary characters during the song, but I definitely agree that Vlad and Ellen's could have just come at the tail end or something and then it would have felt more cohesive. Yeah. The song is just also just so good. Like The lyrics are really powerful. When I'm crying tears of sadness, won't you turn them into tears of gladness? And just like the whole idea of just escaping all this bad in your life to somewhere better. It's uh, very much resonated with me at the time and also now. I really liked the humor in this movie, too. I think a lot of it did hold up watching it this time again. A lot of it kind of reminded me of Wet Hot American Summer and like Amy Poehler's character, for example. Like this super overbearing, over eager, ultra controlling camp director 
you got a lot of that mirrored in here too, like the uh, Jenna in the little dumpster play that they're trying to put on going, I have to go to the bathroom and the director just screams out, piss in the dumpster. It's just, there's like so many quips in here that are really, really funny. And it all comes from that like over eager theater kids stuff that I think they nail here. There's a lot of movies that try and do the over eager theater kids stuff and they just don't quite hit the mark of like authentic and sincere, but also capturing that extraness of it all. Yeah, I liked the dynamic with Vlad and Michael. Uh, they had like a good uh, interplay and, and a lot of like bouncing off one another when they had scenes together. Um, Ellen's delivery of like a lot of her sort of scathing rebukes in some scenes were really well delivered. And I think Jill as a character generally brought a lot of humor to the film, despite sort of what the purpose of her character was just to be antagonistic to to Ellen primarily. But her character is like such a caricature of the mean girl yeah. that just sort of like everything about her is a little bit funny. I wrote down that she was giving me a lot of like Alaska's Mae West snatch game impersonation. <laughs> there was just like all these moments where it was like, oh, why don't you come over and see me? And just like, there was just some like very over-the-top look like expressions and the way she was delivering lines and like when she invites Vlad over to her place so they can basically do it. It's like just the way she was delivering everything was giving me a lot of Mae West for some reason and I wasn't mad about it. Yeah, I can see that. I like her uh, dynamic with Fritzy as well. Um, And just like the, I think I'm getting it right. It's whatever happened to baby Jane where like the ingenue overcomes the, the master or whatnot. Uh, I liked Fritzy's line. I didn't like it, but it was like, wow. Uh, When the one girl's trying to audition for like the Turkey Lurkey time song, which is a horrible song. I don't know why you'd want that role, but anyways, I have a beef with Turkey Lurkey time. She's trying to audition for this, but she's like a plus size girl. And Fritzy goes up to her and goes, well, everyone would see her legs. Not that they're so bad, just a little chunky, but the halter tops, I'd worry about all the rolls jiggling about in the spotlight. And it's just like, hot damn, Fritzy, where did that come from? She's like clearly harboring like this evil, evil spirit inside her. She's so ruthless. Yeah, I have that in my uh, bad section, and we're definitely going to talk about that more. Yeah. Because it made me real angry. Oh, yeah. I think it's done for a purpose, obviously. But, yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that in here. Yeah. I really like... There's there's parts of Vlad I hate, and we're going to get to that in the bad part, too, for sure. But there's some stuff there, like, when Vlad is, like, pretending to act in front of his mirror, and he's just, like, saying out an emotion and then trying to act to it, like, sadness. He goes, Vlad, your cat's dead. I'm sorry. He was hit by a car this afternoon. I like pretending to act sad, and it's just like, oh my god. He's like so clueless, but very endearing at times because of it. He's trying to find a situation that's going to inspire him to cry, and I think one of the directors had asked him to sort of do that. Yeah. And so, you know, like your cat died, it was hit by a car. Like, Vlad, your mom died. She was hit by a car. Got taken out by a car. (laughs) Like, yeah. But yeah, when you're delivering that information to yourself, like obviously it's 
hard to have the response that you're trying to trying to um, to bring out of yourself. Like if I was standing in front of a mirror, like saying that stuff to myself, I would probably laugh. Uh, the other thing I kind of wanted to mention in this section is just that scene where Michael and Jenna are doing a Shakespeare production of Romeo and Juliet, and Michael completely snaps during the performance. His parents are supposed to be there. They don't show up. He sees the empty reserved seats for them. And he just kind of snaps, goes off character, and then runs off. And the whole time, Jenna is here as, I forget exactly what character, but she's like dressed like a Franciscan monk. She's just sitting there with her jaw wired shut, and she doesn't know what to do because he went completely off book. So she just stares forward and smiles, and it is hilarious. Just Jenna, with her jaw wired shut the whole movie, didn't get a lot of lines, but she was so funny every scene she was in. I kept looking at her because she was killing it, and I just really liked Jenna. I like the scene where um, Jill comes to interrupt their lunch, and she goes, what are you drinking? And Jenna says, a chicken breast, (laughs) which is very gross, but what are you going to do when your jaw's wired shut, I guess? Yeah. I did also kind of like the scene uh, near the beginning when Vlad... Actually, there's two scenes because they both relate to sports. Actually, I guess there's... Oh, I guess there's... The sports counselor? Oh, yeah, so when one of the students is sitting next to this guy and he goes, Hi, I'm your sports counselor. And he goes, We have a sports counselor? And then there's like a shot later where he's like hanging out on the basketball court. And there's like no kids around. And then the same kid like comes by and he goes, Hey, think fast. And like throws the basketball. And this kid is like not sports inclined at all. So it just like bounces off his chest he goes i don't know and just keeps walking (laughs) yeah and then when vlad is moving into their cabin for the summer you know they're all watching like intently for some indication of like whether or not he's straight or gay or whatever and he like pulls out a football and they like don't really know what to do with that and he like pulls out a basketball like all of these things and then when he goes to the bathroom to put his stuff away ellen immediately goes matthew has to stay like three feet away from him until we know if he's straight or gay or something. Yeah. But I was like, as soon as he pulled a basket or a football out of his bag, that should have been a clear indicator for you. But I mean, that's stereotypical. So I guess I shouldn't say that. I also like that right before he pulls out this basketball and all and football and all this, um, right as the camp, all the kids are getting into their, their cabin. You see, I think it's Spritzer. He's walking around and he's putting like, little scarves over top of the lamp and they're like decorating it. Like it's super queer and it's wonderful. And it reminded me so much of, especially like putting little scarves over the lamps and everything. Yeah. I really liked while all the kids were auditioning for the various musical parts. You have the one camp counselor who's just doodling to himself, a picture of some girl auditioning with the tomorrow from Annie and then him hanging himself. (laughs) because he's heard it so many times, it's just over it. It's like, that's dark, and I get it. (laughs) Some of the auditions in this movie were actually hilarious. They remind me somewhat of, like, Pitch Perfect, where it's all the girls auditioning, I think it was, like, Follies or something, like, I'm still here. And it's just, like, how insanely over-eager they are, and just, like, completely over-performing the song to all hell. Yeah. And it is very earnest. That scene was so weird, because then, like, Vlad comes in with his guitar, and oh i should have made note of the song wild horses yeah so he starts seeing like wild horses and everybody acts like i mean it is probably a breath of fresh air after all of these like broadway songs but it's so awkward because then 
like the backing band, like they start playing along and everyone's just like jamming along and they're like the one counselor's like, Wow, and honest to God, straight boy, it's just like, oh well weird. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't know who did that song, and I did not know it was a Rolling Stones song, and this is probably where I heard it first. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe some truth to that. I think it's famous, right? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not very well-versed on things that aren't musicals. <laughs> yeah, it's not a song that I am overly familiar with from the Rolling Stones, but I, I mean, its use in this movie probably speaks to its popularity. Certain people would recognize it. I recognize the song, but I didn't know who it was by. So I guess we'll jump on to the nitpick section. Some of the things from the movie that weren't necessarily like deal breakers for you, but, you know, they got to you one way or another. Literally all of the parents were so terrible. Yeah. Like, Jenna's parents were, I think, the worst in terms of, like, what we actually saw on screen. Obviously, Michael's parents were not great with the fact that they basically disowned him. And then... Yeah, that's not great either. Yeah. At least you could tell that Jenna's parents were misguidedly trying to do it out of some sort of love for their daughter. Extremely misguided. I mean, I've got this one quote from Jenna's dad where he goes, where they come to see her perform, and he goes, I don't understand how can you spend the summer with your jaw large shut and still look like that? Like, like everything about his attitude. You're like, oh, we compromised. We got her jaw wired shut. Like, She's like, what, 16, 17 years old? Yeah. And then when you saw a full body shot of her when she was singing her song, like, she's not a big girl. Like, she's got wide hips, but, like, she's... That's so mad. Everything, all of... This yeah. is going to end up dipping into the bad section because I don't have a lot of things under the nitpick. But, like, holy shit, the fat shaming in this movie. We will talk about it more, but I will just say that is a separate thing. Um, I guess one other nitpick is I kind of wanted Vlad to be a, a bicon. And he ended up just being kind of a sleaze, and that disappointed me a little bit. We can't talk about that until the bad section either. Let's just jump to the bad section, because honestly, yeah, for me, it kind of goes... I don't have a ton of nitpicks. There wasn't things in this movie that were like, uh, that was kind of weird, or like, you know, little nitpicky things. It was more like, I don't know, Ellen being super fucking biphobic, and Vlad being a complete sociopath, and like, some of that stuff, all the fat shaming. So let's just jump into it. Maybe we'll start with the fat shaming. Um, we've touched on it a few times. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's at the top of my list here. Like that, you talked about what Fritzy said to the other girl when they were working on costumes. Like, oh, mini skirts and halter tops, and then like the costume that they actually wore was like this dress that wasn't even particularly form fitting or that short, and it would have looked totally fine. But also, like, it's not like fat people didn't exist in the 1960s. Like, what the actual fuck? And, like, everything with Jenna and just, like, even making reference to, like, Ellen sort of, like, being a little bit bigger, even though she was, like, basically the same size as Jill. Like, oh, my God, I'm so tired of this coming up in movie. I think the the Fritzy thing specifically, I think that's on purpose, obviously, to show how, like, cruel and manipulative Fritzy is and it's just like this holy shit moment like wow uh obviously there's a lot of fat shame in this movie and that's pretty terrible but like I think it can be used to show how bad a character is obviously but this movie kind of just piled on in many different scenes with it so it definitely I wrote it down in several places as well like and the weird thing about it is is they cast Jill as 
I would call her a plus size, not plus size. You know what I mean? Like she's not, Jill isn't your stereotypical queen, queen bee stick thin character. She's not super thin yeah. and she's going around fat shaming all these people that like Ellen is pretty objectively smaller than her, in my opinion, like just, and is just like complete fat shaming her. And it's like very strange for me. It's like they wrote that all this stuff for like for Jill and then cast her as someone that doesn't really fit that role, I guess. I don't know. It was very weird to me because like it was just super weird. There's all this fat shaming and like all of the female characters, they just have very different body types. And so, of course, like the fat distribution on your body is going to be different than another. Like Ellen is not fat, but she's got wide hips and Jenna's not fat, but she's got wide hips. And like, I would say that like Jill, generally speaking, was, you know, kind of like a very straight up and down character. Like she wasn't particularly hippie or uh, or anything Jill had very wide shoulders and like, and was bigger, like taller and all this too. And like, I wouldn't call any of them fat and I wouldn't call any of them like super skinny either. Like they were all just normal looking, right? Like they, they all just look like normal teenage girls to me. And I guess maybe that's part of like what they were trying to get it with. Like everyone kind of being horrible and nasty to each other over things where they're all kind of, they're just teenagers and it's like super unnecessary. And there's maybe a point they were trying to make in there, but didn't necessarily come across in most of those scenes. Yeah, I agree. If there was a point that was supposed to be made with respect to that, it definitely didn't make itself apparent anywhere. I think the closest they get to that is Fritzy's kind of like personality starting to bubble forth. Cause it was like the whole point of her saying that to that girl to, it was to get her to not audition for the roles so that Jill could get it. She was going around and trying to sabotage everyone so that Jill would get the role she wanted yeah, as no. being like Jill's minion. And just, like, seeing how far Fritzy would go for that was, like, the point, I guess. We already talked about Ellen being given and I'm telling you over D, so, like, we don't need to go into that again. But that was in my bad section. I was like, uh, why is this happening? I think it was important to show, like, clearly how ridiculous it all was. Like, it was all completely on purpose to, like, have these black characters uh, in the movie complain that they weren't able to get represented and uh, Sean basically saying like, I want my little brother to be able to sit to, to like be himself and perform as a character that looks like him. And, and then <laughs> they give the lead role of that musical to Ellen, who, which is ridiculous, but it's all because the, the camps like, Oh, we're colorblind yeah. casting, but by colorblind casting, you're missing yeah. the whole point of doing something like dream girls to give someone like D or Jenna a role that fits them perfectly and that they would really want to get to play. Okay. We'll talk things about Vlad because I have a couple of things down here. Oh God. I don't even know where to begin on Vlad. Vlad is such a weird mess of a character towards the end of this. Um, Like he's, he's clearly got not just OCD, but like there are some deep seated issues there where like he feels like, he needs to fill these gaps he sees in people's lives and like be, be what anyone else wants him to be and wants to, needs him to be. And he, but like, he's such a trash yeah. person doing it. And like the whole time he's got a girlfriend at home and yet he gets with Ellen, he gets with Jill and he gets with D and he toys Michael around the whole time, pulling up his shirt uh, and flirting with him. And then at the end, like, just strips naked in front of Michael and says, what? I'm just going skinny dipping. And the whole time he's like 
And it's not even trying to be manipulative, really, I don't think. It's like he's trying to be what they want him to be, so he's trying to, I don't know. It's super weird. Even if you're trying to be what somebody wants you to be, like, you still do know what you're doing. Like, you know that by, you know, stripping naked in front of this boy who has clearly given indications that he's attracted to you, that, like, you're doing something and sort of giving a a half-assed apology about the fact that you just need attention from people, like, doesn't excuse that behavior. But so much of, like, the dynamic between Vlad and Michael is why I was like, I want Vlad to be, like, a bicon, you know, but instead he ended up being this trashy straight boy who plays with people's emotions and kisses all of the girls at camp. And then I really liked when Ellen confronts him about the fact that, you know, he was supp- she was supposed to just assume that he had a girlfriend, and, but he didn't need to assume that she had a boyfriend. Yeah. That whole exchange was really good. That exchange was good, and then that goes to a dumpster fire <laughs> later. We'll, talk, we'll also talk about that. But it reminded me a lot, the dynamic of these three characters, as the movie Dare. And the movie Dare, with Emmy Rossum in it, is on my list. It's very good. It's also a movie about a girl and two guys and their intertwining relationships and kind of like the bias of it all. And there's, it's like, it's this very good, from what I remember, it might not hold up movie that mirrors a lot of these plot points, but in a much more interesting and dynamic way than this movie, which just kind of shits all that at the end. It's very frustrating. Let's just talk about the end. So the, the end scene, Michael is at the lake. Vlad comes down, strips naked in front of him, completely toying with him and playing with him, and he's still keeping up the whole thing that he's been doing the whole movie. They know about his girlfriend at this point, um, and he's still toying with everyone, and there's just something there about him that, I don't know, I think he's got sociopath tendencies. I think he doesn't understand or read human emotions properly, or like he he's trying to make himself and his emotions and like mold into what he thinks people need him to be in some sort of weird sociopath way. I don't know. But basically in the end, Ellen's broken up with him because obvious reasons and the whole speech you said Ellen gave, but then at the very end, uh, Vlad goes, okay, after camp, we live kind of close to each other. Do you want to like get together after camp's over? And I'm just like, what the fuck? He's just slept with all these people. He's toyed with Michael. He is complete sociopath and Ellen just kind of goes, yeah, let's do it. And Michael's like, what? And I'm like, what? Ellen, why would you think for half a second? Why would you ever think for half a second to go out with him? And she turns to Michael and says, eventually I have to start hanging out with boys who don't wear dresses. And my jaw drops open at this point. It's like, holy shit, Ellen. You mean the boys that have been there for you your entire life, every camp, your best friends, like you're just going to drop them because it's like, well, I guess these gay guys are okay for now, but now I need to move on to a real relationship. Like the fuck? Like I got to get a dick and suck time. I just wrote down, Ellen is no fag hag. She is horrible. She's a little JK Rowley. That's what I wrote down. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. Like, she's awful. She's also extremely biphobic. Um, she says, butt out, there's no such thing as bisexuality, you know. And I just go, thanks, Ellen! (laughs) And I also wrote, I guess with a name like Ellen, 
that's not a surprise. I don't know. I, I was very mad at Ellen and J.K. Rowling writing this, clearly. Fair enough. Line was one of the things where, when I was sort of vaguely messaging you about the movie while I was watching it, <laughs> if I did, like, a string yeah. of, like, exclamation points or, like, oh, my God, or whatever, like, that is definitely what it was in response to. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, so... Ellen's kind of horrible. Body erasure is like a huge problem in queer circles. So for her yeah. to say that, this is like, Ellen, holy shit. I mean, I guess this is 2003, but it's not like the issue of body erasure in 2020 has improved by any yeah. stretch. It's pretty shocking, Ellen's turn at the end of this movie. Like, I just don't, like, I can understand one of these shitty writers writing in the line that bisexuality doesn't exist for Ellen because they're a terrible writer who doesn't understand bisexuality exists, but like the whole twist at the end where she's or not twist, but the whole thing at the end where she just like takes Vlad back. Cause you know, gotta stop hanging out with gay guys at some point and get into a real relationship. It's just like so shitty, so problematic and like shocking. It's like, I just don't even understand it. Like we're not even, and it's at the very end of the movie. And then it basically just cuts to black almost at that point. Like that's the end. We are not given any explanation, really, other than just, like, I need to stop hanging out with guys who wear dresses. Real weird. Yeah. Uh, In a similar vein to Ellen's bisexuality is not a thing, um, when Vlad and Michael are having, like, an early conversation between them before they start to get close, you know, Vlad asks, oh, can I ask you a personal question? Are you gay? And then he's like, have you ever tried being heterosexual? And I was just like... He even goes, are you a gay? Yeah. I just like, head in my hands. Like, I cannot believe that you asked this question. I kind of got that as weird flirting. The way he asks it came off as like weird flirting. Every conversation Vlad and Michael had came off as weird flirting. Like, Vlad was like practically licking his lips and making googly eyes the whole time. It was reasons why I wanted Vlad to be like a bicon, right? Because like the way that he flirted with Michael yeah. and the way that he flirted with all of the girls, like to have a bi character would have been so good. And then he ended up just being this totally trash person where, you know, like he's there was something Ellen and there, she walks in on him kissing D and he like Yeah. It's inferred that he has or it's implied that he has sex with Jenna or not Jenna, with Jill. Jill. And yeah. it's just like you know, he's hitting, he's the only straight boy at this camp, so I guess he's got to hook up with every straight girl, which is the only people that are at the camp. Like, why can't we have a lesbian? Jesus. I don't know. Yeah. The whole thing with, with Vlad is so hard to unpack because there's little bits and pieces there that are clearly, it's not him. I don't think it's him, try, like, as some master manipulator or, like, sex god or something. Like, he's only doing it when people show him vulnerability and, like, like with D, it's super weird because he goes to D to confirm, like, hey, did you and Michael sleep together? And then she goes basically, like, well, no one else is interested in me and no one else has shown me the time of day and it was nice to get some attention. And hearing this, Vlad instantly switches into Vlad mode and goes to try and make out with her because it's like, oh, she's she um, feels lonely. I need to fill that void. He does the same thing with Ellen and the same thing with Michael. And it's he has this kind of speech at the end where he kind of tries to describe it. But then he kind of goes, maybe I just like attention. But I don't think that's what he actually. Yeah. I also felt super weird when Michael tells Vlad that he's going to cure his OCD. Like. 
uh, all of these weird things that teenagers say to each other, but also just like that somebody decided that was a thing that they needed to write into this script was also very weird. I don't know. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Also, Fritzy does not face any consequences for the fact that she poisons Jill. Like, she does this thing and she goes and does the production, and like, that's the last of it. We don't ever see Musical theater, Leanne. It's cutthroat. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, nobody ever sees any repercussions from any of the camp counselors. I mean, we barely see any of the camp counselors for most of the movie, honestly. But, like, she doesn't get in trouble for this at all. And then, you know, it sort of comes up again at the end when there's that weird thing with, like, the Snapple bottle. And then Jill has a a reaction to her makeup, and she accuses Fritzy of uh, meddling with it, but we don't ever get any confirmation of of that happening or what exactly happened with that. But it's like, if you're going to put laundry detergent or bleach or something in a drink for somebody to drink that they could literally die from, like, I feel like there should probably be some pretty serious repercussions for that and not just being casually told off as you also storm out on stage to, like, make the show happen. Like, it's so crazy. I should also say that it is all about Eve is the movie I'm thinking of this parallels. Not whatever happened to Baby Jane. That's a completely different movie. It's very all about Eve. If we watch Dare, it's a lot hornier than this, but it's the same thing, essentially. I wanted to mention the other short film titled Dare that this kind of reminded me of, which is kind of like uh, a Michael Vlad situation where you've got like the jockey straight guy and like the kind of burnouty loser who I don't know if he's out at the time or not. And it just like, they have, he happens to come over to this guy's house one night. I don't remember the exact thing, but it's basically like the straight guy and the gay guy and the straight guys, maybe not quite as straight as he thinks when he's, when the two of them are alone. And it's like this kind of, slow burn between the two of them over the course of a night where they kind of let loose a little bit and open up to each other. And it's like a really good, like 15 minute or whatever short film that was so clearly where the Michael and Vlad thing could have gone and it was starting to go, but never really fully committed to that. And I think that's one of my big problems is that the movie didn't fully commit to any of to, to an ending really at all. Like, it didn't fully commit to, like, Vlad being bisexual or Vlad being into Michael or, like, they didn't really pick any sort of ending there. Like, Vlad and Michael's situation just kind of is just left hanging. And the whole Ellen thing ended somewhere, I guess. Like, her and Vlad get together, but it really, it there's no buildup to that. It's just kind of thrown out there at the end. And we don't get any sort of resolution to these characters' stories that we've been following. Yeah, I feel like with Ellen... It would have been more satisfactory for her character arc for Vlad to say, hey, since we live close together, we should go out. And for her to say no, because he's, like, treated her like shit over the summer by sort of, like, playing her emotionally with all of these other people. She deserves so much better. And if she had turned him down, I think that would have been a much more appropriate uh, ending for her, for her arc at the very least. Yeah, I kind of wrote down in some of my musings down here that if I were going to attempt to like change or fix the movie, I would definitely have it probably focus on Vlad and Michael and drop Ellen down to supporting cast as like the rest of the role, kind of like a similar role to Jill or something. Give her kind of like a, a B plot that more 
appropriately addresses her kind of like feeling trapped in this like fag hag role and not being able to get a guy and her low self-esteem, maybe like treat that off to the side, have her to get together with one of the other campers, some sort of like B plot with her, but focus on this weird chemistry between Vlad and Michael. Where's that going? How's that going to end up? Is Vlad doing all of this just because he's he sees the pain Michael's in and is trying to fill that void? Whatever it is, the problem with Vlad, if we actually addressed that by the end of the movie and kind of gave some closure to that whole relationship, that would probably be enough to drive the whole movie for me with them as main characters. Yeah. It is such an ensemble movie anyways. Um, One thing we didn't mention at the time, or I didn't mention at the time, with the whole... Uh, fiddler on the roof and then getting turned into dream girls because they oh, we don't have enough uh, black kids to do a full black cast show uh it just reminded me a lot of my niece who was in a all-white production of hairspray oh in gosh. her kids theater group <laughs> which to this day is one of the most hilarious mm-hmm. that i didn't get to go see it sadly I don't know if I could have made it through the whole thing, but she, yeah, she was in an all white version of Hairspray that they did for, it's like an after school theater group thing that she's in. And it's primarily female. So that there's maybe like one or two guys in her group. So a lot of the girls are playing male characters and all of them are white. So they're playing all the black characters. And it was real awkward because they had to basically decide, okay, we're going to put all the characters of, people are playing characters of color are going to be in like monotone colors and all the white characters are going to be in like plaids and stuff and patterns. And it was just like, maybe do another show. Like there are many shows you could get a bunch of 13 year old girls to put on hairspray is not one of them. If they're all white, it was real weird. Yeah. That was a real choice. Yeah. I forget that it happens until you mention yeah. it. Like, I don't even know what they did to some of the songs, but like the poor girl is playing Mama Maybell. Like, what's she going to sing about? All her songs are going to get cut. She can't sing about being big, black, and beautiful. Also, all the girls are like very, very tiny 13-year-old white girls. Yeah. The girl playing Tracy was like, you know, 20 pounds soaking wet. It was very weird. Ugh. Okay. That's just a weird rant. <laughs> Very valid and relevant to this movie, for sure. Yeah, it was very, very relevant to this movie. So what would you give this movie on our scale? Um, I would definitely put this movie in uh, Could Use Some Ketchup, Verging on Dowsett. I mean, the fact that a lot of the scenes were cut with the musical performances really kind of helped the movie stay together, but... Like we've already talked about, a lot of the story or the various character arc were not very completed, needed something extra to to make them work. Ten years ago, I would have like been shocked and horrified that you'd suggested this movie as anything other than perfect as is. No, I never thought it was perfect as is. But like the idea that you would give this a Dowsett rating to like a young me would be like horrifying. I love this movie. But every time I've watched this movie since the early 2000s when I saw it for the first time, it just makes me more and more frustrated. Like I still love the movie and there's so many parts of it that I always come back to, but it's a very, very frustrating movie, especially because it starts out with like these great musical numbers. You get really into it and the characters start up really strong. And then it just devolves in the last third to this, like me wanting to scream at my television screen. Like, what are you doing, Vlad? Ellen, how are you so terrible? What's going on? 
why is Michael the only one in this I like anymore? Um, so I definitely agree that it's verging on douse hit, but I think there's enough there that definitely redeems the movie and makes it something worth watching to give it a, a could use catch up. It's not what you did, son, that angers me so. It's who you did it to. Who? The fucking nobody? That fucking nobody is John Wick. was an associate of ours. We called him Baba Yaga. The boogeyman? Well, John wasn't exactly the boogeyman. He was the one you sent to kill the fucking boogeyman. Oh. John is a man of focus. Uh, so for this episode, I asked you to watch the movie John Wick, which is a action and adventure movie released in 2014, starring Keanu Reeves, Michael Nyquist, Ian McShane, Alfie Allen, Willem Dafoe, Dean Winters, Adrian Palicki, Lance Reddick, John Leguizamo, and Bridget Moynihan. Uh, director is Chad Steleski. Uh, and John Wick is actually his first ever directorial credit, and uh, his subsequent credits are also other John Wick movies, John Wick Chapter 2 and John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. He got his start in the film industry as a stuntman, which translates really well into this type of movie, as we'll talk about sort of the action sequences and everything. And uh, David Leach is also listed as a director on IMDb, but it's noted that he's uncredited. And he's also a um, stuntman as well. And this movie has a tomato meter rating of 86%, which is lower than I was expecting, but still pretty good. Uh, I chose this movie for you to watch because, one, it is just entertaining as hell. Uh, I watched this movie for the very first time. I think it was last year. Um, I was going back through like my Facebook post history because I know that I had indicated that I was watching it at some point. And it was around this time last year, actually, that I had posted about it. But I don't think that's the first time I had watched it. But since then, I have seen it probably like five times. It's a movie that I put on as a comfort movie because it's just a lot of fun. It also has really good world building, uh, which I feel is something that you could appreciate, although you don't really see a lot of this world building until chapter two and chapter three. So the plot of this movie, uh, thin as it is, caught in the throes of grief following his wife's recent passing, John sets out on a revenge quest when a group of Russian mob thugs break into his house in the middle of the night to steal his prize car, killing his dog Daisy, the last gift from his late wife in the process. A former gun for hire, John works with a singular focus and he doesn't stop until he's hit his target. So uh, what were your initial thoughts about this movie? Um, so I'm not going to lie. At some point, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, I was like, why did Leanne make me watch this? I'm going to turn this off. This is terrible. And then I fully came around by the end, of course. But 
I was not expecting them to fridge a dog as the um, opening of this movie. It was pretty shocking to me, and I couldn't really get over it for a while. I was very angry at this movie for so blatantly and violently, like, just out of nowhere, although I did see it coming, kill this dog. Like, I even wrote down on here, um, this dog is going to die, right? Like, that's going to happen, and it's going to hurt. Are we literally going to fridge a dog for this man's character development? And then later on, I wrote, his dog is cute, I guess. And it's I'm dead. Sorry. Cool. Fuck you, booby. Like, it was it was pretty jarring. And it took me a long time to get over that because it was real upsetting. Real upsetting. But once I got past that and got into the bulk of the movie, I really understood why it was kind of like a comfort movie for you. Why you, you constantly come back to this. And I can relate it all back to it's basically your version of what like resident evil would be to me. It's literally just 90 minutes of, of Keanu Reeves, like fucking people up and it's entertaining as hell. It's, it's very similar to resident evil in a lot of ways. I found like that where it's, you don't need like this massive plot or anything. And a lot of it is just really good action scenes in very, it's like got a very camp aesthetic to it in the way it's filmed and shot. Like it's over the top action. It's very indulgent. A lot of the gun work and the stunt work is, um, it reminded me a little bit of like certain points at like 300 and resident evil where it's like very stylized and very engaging to watch. Like the action was really, really good. Um, so it reminded me of Resident Evil in that way, where it's like just a movie you stick on in the background, and it's like, yeah, I can just watch Alice kick some zombie and Umbrella Corp ass for 90 minutes, and it's super fun and great, and I don't need to, like, 100% focus on it the whole time. So I definitely got that, but it was a hard sell for me at first, and I was clocking it. It was 25 minutes into the movie before anything actually really happened, and the first 25 minutes for me were real bad. Um, we'll talk about that later. Obviously, we're going to get to our uh, bad section, but I would say by the end of the movie, I was on board enough to then start watching the second movie later I'm that really, night. I'm really glad to hear that uh, you uh, watched it. Chapter 2. John Wick Chapter 2, I think, is my favorite of the series so far. Um, it just has sort of the most solid story, and it really expands on sort of like the initial world building from this movie. But we're not talking about Chapter 2, so I won't focus on that too much. Yeah. I would say the world building wasn't very strong for me in this movie. I had at a few points down here written down um, a few th questions that I thought I needed a little bit more on, but I got more of that in yeah. episode two. But again, we're not talking yeah. about that. Yeah. We'll get to that. So we want to jump into the, the good. Then? Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to give like a real quick rundown of sort of like what happens in the movie from like start to end, kind of identify who the key characters are that we'll um, bring up. So at the very beginning of the movie, um, John is saying goodbye to his wife, Helen. She's, we're not sure what she's died of. It's, I assume it's some sort of disease or cancer. I don't know if he actually mentions what it is uh, throughout the movie at all. And uh, at the funeral, he talks to a friend named Marcus, who is uh, the first bit of alluding to John being from some other world. Um a very brief exchange and then later that night there's a delivery to the house it's a dog it's this little um bugle dog named daisy and the name is um related to a symbol that um, was very significant to helen so like the card has a daisy on it like it's a whole thing 
And then the next day, John goes out with Daisy for a drive. And during that time, while he stops for gas, he encounters um, these Russians at the gas station. And there's this exchange about the car. It's like a very um, rare type of Mustang. And the guy that he's talking to makes a comment about, like, how much would it cost to buy? And he says it's not for sale. And then they leave. And then later that night, the the Russian guys show up at the house. And they break in. And they beat the shit out of John. And they kill the dog. And they steal his car. And then the Russians take the car to a chop shop. And the owner of the chop shop, Aurelio, immediately recognizes the car. Um gives him shit for stealing it because he knows who it belongs to. And throughout this entire first, like, 20, 25 minutes of the movie, we get, like, a lot of subtle allusion to, like, who John is. And, like, uh, there's just, like, a lot of very subtle things that are telling us about John before we actually get to uh, a lot of the action sequences. And uh, after Aurelio, he gets a call from a man named Vigo, who's the father of this kid who stole the car, his name is Yosef. And um, Aurelio had slapped Yosef or he punched him uh, across the face for doing this thing. And Aurelio explains the reason that he did is because the car is John Wicks. And he also says, and they killed John's dog. And Vigo just goes, oh, and that's the end of the call. And then Vigo calls John and you know, offers his condolences about his wife, tries to, like, smooth things over. Again, another situation where, like, we're getting some very subtle indications of, like, who John is and his relationship to this world. And then we get all of these mercenaries sent to John's house to take him out. And during the call with Vigo, John is, like, using a sledgehammer to unearth this chest, and it's got these gold coins in it, and it's full of guns. And he very handily takes all of these guys out no problem and then everything sort of progresses from there and it's very action heavy vigo takes out a contract on john and there's just yeah that's sort of like where the the world building part comes in and it's pretty action heavy towards the end uh one thing that i really liked um jumping into the good was before john goes out um you know with his full intent of uh revenge is we get a couple of um, very short scenes where he's like fighting the guys at his house and he gets like a knock at the door and it's a police officer and he's on a first name basis with this guy. And, you know, it's like John, Jimmy, and like Jimmy looks into the house and he can see that there's like dead bodies on the floor behind him. And he says, you working again? And John says, just working through some stuff. And like, that's the end of the exchange. But there's like a familiarity there and like, some subtle respect and it's kind of weird, kind of funny. And then after, um, after this, John makes a call and he, you know, says, I need to make a a dinner reservation for 12. And then these other guys show up to basically clean up the house and take all of the bodies away. And again, it's the same interaction where it's like, there's a sense of familiarity and respect. And it's all just like very subtle, like says a lot about John's relationships with these people and sort of, like, the reputation that he has without, like, really, again, sort of telling us too much about John until we get further into the movie. Um, I also think that the cast for this movie is incredible. Keanu Reeves, of course, pretty iconic for action adventure. We've got Alfie Allen, who I know him sort of in a visual familiarity, 
as Theon Greyjoy from Game of Thrones. <sighs> and of <Yeah>. course, <laughs> and of course we have Willem Dafoe who has a relatively small part in this movie, but is like, he just generally does so good with the roles that he has. He was really good in this. He was. I really then, liked um, the dad who played Vigo as well. He was really strong. Yeah. Michael Nyquist. Yeah. He was yeah. great. And Dean Winters, who plays Avi, he's the lawyer for the Russians. Um, for some people, he might be better known as the character The Vulture from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And he also played the the character Chaos and all of those Allstate commercials, you know, where he's like, I'm a hot girl or whatever, you know, these like weird scenarios um, leading to like vehicle accidents. And he just has, has a very particular acting style about him that, I don't know, just lends himself to sort of like ignorance that is kind of humorous. I really liked that he worked for this Russian mafia group and every time they spoke Russian, he would like chastise them to speak English. Like, my dude, you should be learning Russian, honestly. I really liked, um, I know we briefly touched on it, but just the action in general in this movie, obviously very good, but more so than the action, the way it was filmed um, was really interesting to me. It reminded me a lot almost of Atomic Blonde, the way everything that, was yeah was filmed with these really bright poppy colors, especially at the whole circle bar that they were fighting at that entire fight scene where you've got the, like the, the deep blues and purples and reds uh, over top of everything as they're fighting. And like, this is the very intricate fast paced over the top choreography that um, unlike a lot of things doesn't pull away very much. So you saw all the intricate choreography rather than like shaky cam like all over the place, what you get in a lot of action movies, right? Um, so it was very deliberate, everything, which I really liked. That entire scene at the circle was probably my favorite, where he's chasing down uh, Yosef, who's uh, at uh, in the hot tub or whatever, and he's chasing him down and how methodical it was, and then the chase through the entire uh, few levels of the bar out into the street. Like, it was very good. That was probably my favorite part. Yeah. Definitely the fact that the the actor, or sorry, not the actors, the directors of this movie uh, are stuntmen themselves, uh, really, really lended itself so well to the quality of the action. I agree that the filming of all of those fight scenes, like very up close, like really highlighting um, sort of the intricacy of that, uh, really just made, I think that's really what made the, the movie so enjoyable, is that you get these very close-in um, fight scenes where you sort of like feel like you're a part of it as opposed to these sort of distant things, which I yeah. think comes up more when like the fight choreography is like maybe not that strong. And um, the fact that they were able to film so many of the scenes quite close up speaks to it, sort of the the quality of the choreography in that regard. I didn't, it didn't seem like there was many stunt doubles being used or anything like that either. Like it seemed like Keanu was doing all of this. I'm not sure a hundred percent on that, but I didn't, see any obvious stunt doubles for him at any point i mean i didn't see any either but i think that's also like the testament of a good stunt yeah, double when you yeah. aren't able to recognize when there is a stunt double yeah. so i'm not and that's sure so often because it's like oh it's someone on a bike or it's someone from like a distance shot everything was so close that you could see keanu's face doing most of this the whole time it was like so he was clearly doing a lot of it I, i'd be interested to see how much but like i really appreciated that aspect of it so when I talk about world building in this movie, um, things that I am including in that is like the gold coins. You have the hotel, the continental, you know, where the rule is you're not allowed to conduct a business on 
hotel property, which is basically like you're not allowed to kill anybody while you're inside the hotel. Um, you know, like the way that the contracts are set up, you get a lot about how contracts are set up in chapter two. And just all of that worked really well for me. But again, uh, you don't really understand a lot of what those subtle things are until you've watched the subsequent subsequent movies. But um, even just like calling you know, the cleaning guys and the language that's used there, you know, like, do you need to make a dinner reservation? Is the doctor in? Is the manager around? You know, like the language indicates that there's a particular structure to the way that this world functions. I, I enjoyed a lot of the smaller stuff like that, especially, like you said, the dinner reservations, all that kind of stuff was really good for me. A lot of my notes about the world building come down to a lot of the stuff about the the hotel and how I was very frustrated at points where I felt like I was getting, like, I like movies where it's like, okay, we're going to give you a taste. We're going to allude to things. We're going to uh, use some jargon here and there. And you can like kind of piece it together. Like a lot of this movie did with the coins and all that it was very interesting. But then at points it was like, I feel like there's a lot more here that I'm just not being told. And as a standalone movie, I had so many questions that got answered in the second one, which is good for the second one. But as a standalone movie, I was honestly at points a little bit frustrated, not enough for this to be like the bad section. This would be more some of my nitpicks. Yeah. It was just like, okay, I want to know a little bit more how this hotel actually functions. Like we see so little of it. We're only really introduced to two other assassins in this hotel that we kind of spent any time with that. I remember, um, in Miss Perkins, and I forget the other guy who looks after Miss Perkins for him after he subdues her. Harry is the name. Harry, yes. Um, so there, like that whole scene was interesting to me, where uh, Miss Perkins basically goes to break the rules of the Continental and try and take out John Wick for the money. And it's a good fight scene and all that. It was interesting. Where like the the desk downstairs is trying to phone him the whole time while they're having the fight scene. It was very fun. I liked that whole part, but. It just felt weird to me because I, was, I wasn't I was like, okay, but I thought this was a bad, so wouldn't there be like, is there no guards around? Is it just kind of like everyone else could have heard this? No one else, really, like, I just had all these questions that kept popping up over how the Continental worked and the people that were staying there. Mm-hmm. Are they all assassins? I just had all these questions and some of that is good. Like you want to be asking questions, but I could have used just a little bit more that I kind of got in the second one. And they really fleshed out the hotel, especially in the second one. Yeah. Which I really First liked. one is definitely a clear setup for a franchise, which of course it, it now is three movies in there's a fourth coming out. I believe it's next it year. Kind of, it kind of felt very standalone to me. I wasn't left with almost any questions about John wick. At least it felt like a cut and dry, his story. Which yeah. I liked. Like I liked that the movie ended with him getting the second dog and kind of walking off, having seemingly killed everyone that he was up against. Yeah, we didn't really get a lot of cliffhangers to set up a second one. Not that I thought, like I liked the second one, obviously, but yeah, it felt very standalone to me. Yeah, it's very good as a standalone movie, but definitely like the small details are kind of what acts yeah. as the indicator of like this is setting up something bigger but it's yeah there was a lot of stuff there to to build on for the second for sure as far as i mean the fact that it is a watchable movie on its own is yeah is good because there are a lot of movies that are like the setup for a franchise where like when you get to the end you know like if you don't watch the subsequent movie then it feels unfinished so it's nice to have one of these movies where like 
by the end, you know, if there is an subsequent movie, then it's not a big deal. I definitely liked how they ended this one for sure. I love all of the exchanges um, where people are finding out that John is back. Like when Aurelio is talking to Vigo and, you know, he's reveals that the car is John's and that they've killed John's dog. And it's just, Oh, and that's the end of the conversation. And even when Vigo is like beating the shit out of Yosef for what he's done. And like, Yosef is just like, Oh, that nobody. And then Vigo is like that. Nobody is John wick. And he describes him as, you know, Baba Yaga, you know, this, this boogeyman, but then expanding on that said, John wick is the type of man that you send to kill the boogeyman. And Yosef also has a similar like, Oh, moment. Like you really kind of get this layered understanding of the fact that John is a very dangerous person, which is kind of interesting because the way that John presents himself is like, he doesn't seem like a dangerous person um, in his interactions with people. Like he's very friendly with people. There's a lot of respect and admiration in his interactions with everyone at the continental from the owner of the hotel to the hotel manager to yeah. Addie, the woman at the bar, like even on other assassins, everybody's like, Hey John, like there's, it's funny because everyone who meets John isn't afraid of him until they're clear that John is after them. And then they're afraid of yeah. him. It's like, no, no one thinks they have a reason to fear him just as a person. It's only if he's out to get you and then it immediately turns. Yeah which I thought was really Yeah, I think it speaks to the fact that this whole world runs on, like, an honor code, essentially. It's like, you all understand that, like, yeah. we're assassins and that if there's money involved and we're tasked with a job, like, we're going to do that job. But unless the target is on your back, like, you're relatively safe unless you do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, one parallel I kept drawing sort of from the 30 minutes in points is that it felt a lot... I don't know if this is good or bad, but it felt a lot like a marvel movie origin like origin movie it felt like the first iron man something like that where it was very much setting up like a superhero or like an anti-hero type of thing in this case but it it read very beat for beat like a marvel origin movie um and that's kind of i made some notes like i'm sure i'm gonna like the second one better because this is probably the one that's setting up john we have to take half an hour out of the movie to kind of get him to the point where he like puts on the cape type of thing, right? Like, and, and does his superhero thing, or in this case, his assassin thing. Yeah. Um, so it definitely felt like an origin movie to me. Um, one of those origin movies where, like, clearly the character has a previous origin, we're bringing them back into the fold kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, the number of times that John um, is asked, like, oh, are you back? And he says, oh, I'm just visiting. Yeah. And then it's when Vigo's guys are, you know, beating the shit out of him. And he says, you know, people keep asking me if I'm back. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm back. Uh, that which is yeah. I think right around the midpoint of the movie. Around thirty four four forty five minutes in maybe when he gives the I'm back speech, which I wrote down was great. It was the first time we actually heard John Wick make like complete sentences mm-hmm. kind of. For the whole beginning of the movie he barely talks. And this is the first time where we get like this big speech from him and he's just like he's become John Wick in this moment or begin reborn as John Wick or re becomes John Wick. It was very good mm-hmm. scene. Yeah, I think Keanu Reeves is so good in this role just because he does really well with subtlety. Like, think just thinking back to um, yeah. Neo in The Matrix, you know, it's another character where he doesn't have, like, a lot of dialogue. And it's another movie that has, no. you know, a lot of um, physical action sequences, which is, uh, you know, where he obviously really excels. 
So I think bringing that to this character uh, really worked because like, we know that Keanu Reeves in real life is like a very nice guy and he's also very quiet. And I think that carries really well into the character of John, but you know, also Keanu is a very talented actor. So when he finally gets to the point where like, he's bringing that interior John out, the delivery is really yeah. great. He just kept reminding me of it. It just, it was the male atomic blonde. It just reminded me of that. I'm sure this came out before Atomic Blonde, but whatever. Like, I think it's a really interesting parallel to draw, though, because there is like a lot of sort of like neon light kind of yeah overlays. The yeah. whole movie has a very strong overlay over the whole thing, and it's got that same like quiet, subdued, internal um, main character that you root for, even though you fully know they're not like the good guy. Yeah, they're clearly an assassin. But they also have very strong morals. Like you get that both these characters that they're not just like chaotic evil assassins. They like they're very lawful in how they deal with yeah, everything. Absolutely. And they both stop at various points, like clearly drawing the line between who they kill, who they won't kill. Yeah, there's definitely um you know, that goes back to the rules of the the world that we're functioning in, yeah. just that, that there's a particular methodology. Otherwise, you know, you run the risk of having the entire underworld situation against you, which comes up in chapter two and also in chapter three. But I also would not have minded if they put a scene in here where kind of bathed in an ice bath to like take care of his wounds like i would be fine with that i also would have been fine with that i feel like maybe after his scene with the doctor where he yeah um, honestly gets patched up and is basically told like here's some drugs that will make the pain not feel like pain but also like you're gonna rip your stitches that would have been good but i understand that he's sort of on like a a time frame to accomplish his goal so you always have time for an ice bath I should say, speaking on that, though, it was very well done in this movie, just like Atomic Blonde, where you could feel the pain of the main character as they're stumbling around, injured, especially that last scene on the dock, like every hit, every punch, every shot, like you could feel it, which was really well done. That's something that you never see, like the, the weight of these progressive fights over and over and over again, like building up. Yeah, people who, like, get shot in the shoulder, but then, like, can climb a fucking building or something, like, don't have any problem with that. Cough, Tom Cruise, (laughs) cough. (laughs) I do love a Tom Cruise action movie, so. Yeah, different kind of movie. I would think more um, that uh, Dwayne Johnson movie that came out last year. I guess there's, like, a scene where he injures his shoulder, and then he, like, climbs a building. He just looks like someone that couldn't be... He's like a tank. He could not be stopped by bullets. Yeah, I don't think it was a bullet wound in that movie, though. He has, like, a pretty serious cut on his shoulder, which would impact his mobility, but Uh, it, like... Is that Skyscraper? Yeah, Skyscraper. That's the one. I want to watch it. Um, I just wanted to jump back to John's relationship with people and kind of go to the scene at the Red Circle, which is... It's very good, and it's also very satisfying. Um... You know, when he goes up behind the one guy outside Francis and there's that exchange there where, you know, he says, hello, Francis. And Francis asks, you know, like, are you here on business or pleasure? And he says business. And he like gives this guy an opportunity to like bow out, and like not be killed um, by stopping John from achieving his goal. Again, it's just like this added layer of the relationships that John has with people and like the respect that he he carries with him just so much little subtleties in the way that he interacts with people that make me like this movie so much. 
So the red circle is the first attempt for John to kill Yosef and his crew. Uh, it's a club, so... And then downstairs is like a... VIP lounge. Yeah, like it's a, a bath house type thing. And this is such an interesting place, interesting and good place to have, you know, a scene like this where... You're trying to kill people in a subtle way amongst a crowd of innocent bystanders, you know, like when they're rushing through the, the club scene up st- in the upstairs part, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing a really good job to like hide their shots and like not. The one thing I appreciated is that there was a very significant effort that was successful to not have a lot of casualties that were unrelated to like John's goal. Like they weren't killing innocent people, you know, they're being very careful. And that's just like a really great thing that I appreciate because, you know, it's kind of annoying in some of these movies where, you know, loss of life is like not really a concern for anyone. It's like you kind of just spray bullets and whoever gets shot gets shot without any repercussion. Yeah. But you've got like this very loud, like pulsing music and like, the the neon lights that are flashing and like it's all very well coordinated and very yeah it's such a good action sequence yeah it's really good and the whole time you see him just like like the boogeyman just slowly endlessly walking forward cutting through all the guards on his way as yosef half naked with a towel around him is just like stumbling consistently through the crowd just like scared shitless and it was like a really really good parallel there yeah for him to start the movie saying oh that nobody and then you know suddenly have john half a step behind him the whole way through even calling like his friend's cell phone after the fact and john answering it and you know saying he's dead i forget which character it is that he refers to yes Um, spencer yeah but like he's dead and um Doing it in Russian, which was, you know, throwback to the first interaction they have where the Russians are talking to each other in Russian, assuming that this random, you know, doesn't understand what they're saying. And, you know, John replies in Russian, you know, that it's not for sale. And there's that moment of like, oh, shit, like he understood everything that we were saying. So just like, again, you know, these little subtleties that carry through the movie is so good. I kind of wish Keanu's Russian was a little better. Not gonna lie. It didn't sound like all the other people's Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's it kind of reminded me of that video of Keanu trying to seriously read Shakespeare. And it's like, oh, Keanu. <laughs> didn't, didn't, it was just a little bit thick. It was just a little off. <laughs> I mean, I get the impression that, like, John kind of knows how to speak Russian just enough that he can communicate with the Russian sort of I mob get the family. Sense he's very fluent in Russian. Yeah, but you know, just because he's fluent doesn't mean that his manner of speech is necessarily like top notch, right? It was just, it was just so Keanu. It just like is one of those things that kind of takes you out a little bit when you Keanu trying to do accents always gets me in everything I see him in. Fair enough. There was just one or two little syllables or, or words here and there. For the most part, it was pretty good. All right, well, let's move into the bad then, if anything, uh, that you had for this one. I have several things written down. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's fine. But we've touched on it briefly, but I just have to say, I am never here for these pointlessly fridging characters off to like develop a male protagonist type of thing. Like I thought we had more than enough in the dead wife and the car and all this to set up John Wick, that it was very needless, in my opinion, to just violently kill off a dog that we were just introduced to 
two minutes earlier to literally just develop his character. Like there was no other real point to that in my mind, other than just like, we're going to just fridge this dog off to make sure that you get how pissed John Wick is and how he's going to kill all these people. And I thought we could have spent that same amount of time with John after his wife died, spending all his time working in his car, going to rides in his car. Like he's just withdrawn into the only thing he knows type of thing. Let me get a little bit of that. But like, I thought the car would almost have been a stronger focus point for John in that case. Oh, I think I would have had a harder time buying into the the plot thin as it is. I've as I've already said, um, if, the only reason why he was doing this was because his car was... Well, the so, wife. Yeah, but his wife isn't, like, murdered by these people. She dies of natural... No, you can you can tie it as being his last memory, tie it all to the car, or, like, you've already got other things there, in my opinion. It was just so... It was just super upsetting to me. Maybe that they and could have done something other than I just, kill the dog, absolutely, but... We just, like... We just introduce a dog for the sole purpose of killing it off. And it's like, it's not even the dog he had with his wife the whole time. It's just a dog that we get sent in the mail and we just get enough of him getting attached to it. So that it's that much more cruel when he just, they just kill off the dog. And I just feel like there's better ways to develop characters than this kind of sloppy thing that we see all the time. Like at least it wasn't his wife that got fridged off like that was my one wrote it wrote down like at least it wasn't like we're just gonna fridge his his wife helen who was basically and i wrote down to to, apart from the dog just the first 25 minutes of this movie is almost no dialogue almost no real setting up of much apart from little things here and there and it's just him kind of driving around being sad and laying in his fancy house and getting to know his dog for a little bit before they fridge it and driving around his car. And I was just like, Oh, this is slow. And knowing that it's like a heavy packing action movie, I was just, just waiting for that. Really. I think we really only need to cut maybe five minutes of that, maybe 10. And I like, honestly, I don't think it would have changed too much of this entire movie to just cut 10 minutes of the beginning even some of the scenes where he's just laying around and doing nothing like went on a little long for me. So it was hard for me to buy into it at the start because of that. Yeah, I think the slowness of the beginning was sort of part of the subtlety, but I understand that it definitely could have moved a little bit like, faster in places. Yeah, I wouldn't want to cut all of that. There was good stuff yeah. in there, obviously, and you want to do some setup and you need to hammer home that John has this life apart, that he's he's come out of crime to live this life. You have to set up what he's attached to and then why he would come back in such a way and all that. Like, but I, I just don't think we need that much time to set up all that. The dog thing, like I was probably over an hour into the movie before I finally was able to let that go because it was real upsetting. When I watched this, I felt like a good place for the movie to end would have been at the, the scene where Perkins is assassinated for breaking the continental rules because like at that point yosef has been killed you know you've had vigo's whole thing where he beats the shit out of marcus because he was given the opportunity to kill john and had multiple opportunities to do so but because of the nature of his relationship with john he ended up being more of an aid to john in a lot of those uh, situations Instead of, you know, taking him out as he was hired to do. But yeah, yeah, it was like after that, you know, it felt like Perkins being taken out and that being the end was kind of like a nice end to everything going on. 
And if you wanted to set it up better for a second one, that would have. Yeah. So done then, it. like the subsequent sequence where John is, you know, informed about where Vigo's going and all of that, and then we have this additional fight sequence uh, with Vigo and his whole guys before he ends up finding his new pup at the pound where he goes to uh, patch himself up quickly. It's just like the last time I watched it, I was like, I can't. I do kind of feel like we're dragging the action out a little bit too long, and it did feel. Like, that was something that maybe could have been cut. But I do understand that, like, if this is going to be a standalone movie, then, like, you know, John's going to make sure that he gets every single person who slighted him, and then we can kind of tie it up into a neat little bow. But it definitely felt like, you know, Perkins getting taken out, and, like, that would have been a fun place to end it for me. Yeah. I think that's um, a similar feeling that I've had in some of the subsequent movies is there are a few scenes where it's like, it feels like it goes on too long or like the story could have been edited back to a certain point. And obviously won't get into it because we're not talking about those movies here. I think some of that also comes from the fact that John Wick is so unstoppable that we don't really sense a lot of like, at least I didn't get any sense in this movie of John's actually in danger or he's not going to kill his target or there wasn't a lot of obstacles in his way. It was kind of like, okay, they pissed him off. He's been set up as this like superhero esque Marvel character that is like Captain Marvel of this universe, like unstoppable. And I know he's going to get all his targets. And so for me, it's like, okay, the interesting thing here is how is he going to go about it? Is he going to have any more casualties on his way? Like Marcus um, who tried to help him and then ended up getting killed. Like that's kind of the, the interesting parts in there. So the last scene, the whole time I yeah. was kind of thinking like, well, I know he's going to kill everyone and live. And there wasn't anything particularly extra in that scene to make it interesting on top of like, we know they're going to die and he's going to live. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have been perfectly fine. Like I said, you know, ending it with Ms. Perkins being taken out and just kind of assuming that Vigo was also dealt with because, you know, we have no reason to assume that he wouldn't be, you know, I don't necessarily need to see it happen on screen to have that visual confirmation. Um, just because we have so much evidence already of like John's methodical, you know, um, working through these people, you know, being able to endure any amount of pain to, you know, be successful. So, yeah, I wrote down uh, Vigo probably shows up later anyways, because like the way he's killed, and I didn't actually finish the second one completely last night. I had to turn it off. I obviously haven't seen the third one. But, like, I wouldn't be shocked if he showed up just because it was like, oh, he's dead. But we, I don't know, it, like, wasn't the kind of death that it felt, like, somewhat open-ended to me. So if he does come back, that would be interesting to me. But I don't know, probably not. Another thing I wrote down, since we've come uh, br- briefly touched on it, but... um Miss Perkins as a character to me, obviously not a huge character and kind of ended up dealt with in this movie. So it wasn't, didn't need to do too much more with her particularly, but I'm not a huge fan sometimes about how femme fatale characters are just played straight as femme fatale characters with very little else going on for them. Like I love a femme fatale. I like a sexy, badass, ruthless um, woman in like a beautiful, beautiful outfits and like kicking ass, like very Charlize and atomic blonde. But where Atomic Blonde yeah, quite a lot. Let's just movie. talk about Atomic Blonde the whole time. But like that's taking a character like that, like Charlize's character in that movie, obviously main character in the movie, but it doesn't take a lot to push a character, even a side character, from trope to there's a glimmer of something else there. And I kind of just wanted a glimmer of something else there for Miss Perkins. Just because she was like so mustache twirly, femme fatale, she gave like the the flirty little winky nods to John, like, "Oh, I'm an evil assassin," and just 
played her role very much like that, tries to backstab him, shows up later with the bad guy again, basically saying, like, I'm just in it for the money. And I kind of just wanted, like, a glimmer of something. Yeah, I I don't know if that's partly because of the actress that plays Ms. Perkins. I don't really have a great deal of love for Adrian Palicki. No offense to her. I just, I don't particularly care for her. But also there's like three female characters in this whole movie and one of them dies off screen at the beginning. So you've got Miss Perkins and then you've got Addie who plays the bartender and like, that's it. So I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's just a failure. Um, Is she in this movie? I thought it was the second movie. No, yeah, she's the She plays the bartender in the first movie. She's only in it for like three minutes. But she's oh, in it. for some reason, I completely thought that happened in the second one. No, I know. She, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's cool. I want more of her. Yeah, she's great. But yeah, so I don't know if that's just like a failure of the writing. It's like maybe they didn't know what to do with the character of Miss Perkins to like kind of give her more of a fleshed out character, given the small role that she plays in, yeah. the, in the whole thing. But well, almost no one else in this yeah, world I mean, was played off as just being like a straightforward assassin. Like the Henry guy, we even even he's like in 30 seconds of the movie and we get a little bit more out of him. Even like a lot of the male characters, even the villains such as Vigo, we get like even Avi, like Avi the lawyer, I guess, is probably one of the other people that's played completely straight as like just a trope. But a lot of the male characters with similar lengths of roles do get a little bit more to them. Like I said, I yeah. think maybe part of it is a failure on the writing yeah. to know what to do with her, as opposed to being like, she's going to kill John, and like that's her only role, and we're not going to give her anything more than that. You didn't there... see any, any deft female touch to this movie, for sure. Like You could tell the people making this movie behind the scenes, the kind of people making Yeah, it. and I mean, there's way more women in this in Chapter 2 and Chapter 3. Yeah, I'm kind of just speaking on the same subject and this is down to personal preference mostly. So this is more of a nitpick than anything, but I just don't know how invested I can personally ever get in a movie about a broody white cis man with a dead wife who loves cars and hardly talks like emotionally stunted men are not like my favorite subject or thing to watch. So it's, I can buy in, but like there's only so far I'm willing to really give the movie in certain aspects because like a similar movie like resident evil probably has much thinner plot and the characters are definitely not very well-rounded. The world building, like, Resident Evil is not a great movie, but just because of how many female characters there is in there, and even though Alice is kind of a hollow character, I can easily buy into her just because that's the kind of character I like, that's the kind of movie I like. And so I had some troubles with the lack of female characters, and just, he was just such a broody, emotionally stunted man, and it was just like, ugh. I did enjoy it still, obviously. Like, for a movie about an emotionally stunted, broody white man, like, I really enjoyed it compared to almost every other movie similar to this. It's definitely, apart from maybe some of the Mission Impossibles, which are much campier and have a bigger ensemble cast, this is kind of my favorite, one of my favorite action movies in this genre, for sure. Action, my eyes glaze over in action unless I have investment in the character. I like, I need to be invested in the character or the story to even give a shit about the action ever. There was something with Keanu in this movie that I did get invested in. Like, there was something more there than just a Jason Statham, I guess. I don't know. Like, I really don't love Jason Statham. That's totally fair. And the reason I like all the Fast and the Furious movies, which people are constantly like, Greg, you like Fast and the Furious? That's so weird. That's nothing like the movies you enjoy. Like, well, it's got a very diverse cast that I completely buy into. There's really great female characters in a lot of them. The cast is such a great ensemble. They're really fun. They're campy. 
and they sell themselves on the familyness of it all. Like the chosen family aspect in those movies are so strong that yeah. I completely buy into all the action. Yeah, I think with this one, what it really is, is the subtleties of John's relationships with all of the people that he interacts with Yeah, that help you you know, come around to him sure. as a character and like buying into that. And then on top of that is just like a lot of very fun, very well shot, very well choreographed action scenes. And like when I first watched this movie, you know, I watched it only because I kept hearing people talk about it and I wanted to like, you know, find out what all the fuss was about. And I really didn't know what to expect. I was basically expecting a very generic action movie, which in a sense it is. But like at the same time, it was just like, it was 90 minutes of, you know, Keanu Reeves fucking people up. And by the end, I was like, I had a good time. And, you know. It was 60 minutes of Keanu Reeves beating people up and 30 minutes of nothing. But, you know, I'll just point that out. <laughs> Regardless, you know, it's, it's a 90-minute it's a movie where at the end, I feel like I had a good time. And, you know, when it comes to watching a movie, you know, that's the least that you can ask for. It was thoroughly enjoyable by the end, for sure. So where would you put this on the ketchup scale? Perfect as is. Uh, could use some ketchup or douse it. Uh, it definitely could use some ketchup. Like, they, they fridged a dog. I'm sorry. Like, it was so pointless to me. I'm not going to get over that. And if it wasn't for that, I would be tempted to go perfect as is. If a little bit was cut out of the beginning and they'd given me a little bit of a different reason to buy into his revenge crusade that wasn't introducing and then killing off a dog instantly. Well, for the sake of maybe giving you some spoilers for future movies um his new dog doesn't die that's good so things to look forward to and the little pit bull that he takes home with him is so cute it's very cute i am at the position that you know i was joking with you yesterday that you know i said nothing is wrong with this movie this movie is perfect like fight me on it but i agree that you know there are a few areas that could definitely use a little bit of work but i think a lot of those small things um are resolved or saved by the subsequent movies but as a standalone movie i agree it probably could use a little bit of finessing you know put a, a few drops of ketchup on there just to to help it a little bit that's it for us this episode join us again next time where we catch up on more movies with each other for updates on future episodes and other news, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Movie Ketchup Pod.